Hello and welcome to Taking Care of Business. I'm Jackie Mitchell. Today's show is not focusing on success. It's focusing on how to fix things, how to fix dysfunctional teams, how to recover from failures, how to rebuild business relationships, stop destructive behaviours, and how to avoid some simple problems within your team and also within your business that you may not be aware of. So it's a real fix-it show today. We're going to give you some wonderful tips. And of course, Taking Care of Business is made possible by our friends at the EVU Group, Australia's first multi brand real estate network. Now, our first guest is almost Mr. Fixit. He helps people run their business better. He has written a book aptly named Run Your Business Better, and he works extensively with business owners who are in pain. Stephen Barnes, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jackie. Nice to be back. Great to be uh, to have you here, and it was wonderful that you sent me a message updating me on new laws for entrepreneurs and businesses that could affect them, particularly those that are struggling. So, uh, thank you so much for alerting alerting me to that and uh, and helping our listeners always continually improve. Now, just in a nutshell, what are some of these changes that are happening? Well, it all stems from the federal government's uh, drive to um, help businesses succeed. So they've changed some laws um, to make it more favourable for businesses to um, keep going, even if they're struggling. So some of those are uh, Safe Harbour that came in in July last year. Uh, There's a change to the Bankruptcy Act coming in uh, probably next year. Uh, You probably see in the papers and news a lot of talk about Phoenix activities. Uh, There was also some changes around credit reporting by the ATO. Um, And then there's another thing called ipso facto laws, which is a little bit technical being Latin, um, but that also impacts um, business owners as well. Yeah, look, I think that's a really nice little segue to remind our listeners that some of these laws are quite complicated and complex and to always seek professional advice and to seek an expert opinion. So let's let's sort of strip that back or unpack these a little bit, Stephen, to something a little bit more tangible, I suppose, for our listeners to understand. It sounds fantastic. Is it as good as it sounds? Um, it's probably not as good as it sounds, and I think that's a big worry is because they're making a big noise about it, and, but it doesn't actually apply to all businesses. So a lot of these laws actually only apply to businesses that are incorporated as companies, not as sole traders, for instance. So Safe Harbour is one of those. Um, Phoenix Activities is another one um, that that would apply to. Okay, so let's uh, start from the beginning, I suppose. We have to look at, from a business perspective, what your business structure is, whether you're a company, whether you're a, a sole trader uh, in a partnership, or and what's quite common now is more and more businesses are now running under a trust uh, for lots of different reasons. So it's always good to speak to your accountant about which is the best structure for you. So Majority of entrepreneurs or small business, Stephen, in your experience, what what structure do they do they tend to favour? Um, I think they mainly start out as sole traders, mm. and then as they grow, they morph into um, a company. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. So, as a rule. Yeah. Um, and, and, and they do so because there's a lot of protections and uh, benefits for being an incorporator. 
Yeah, um, well, uh, one is the company tax rate's lower, isn't it? And, uh, yeah. and it does protect you a little bit from that. So, okay, so let's talk about changes. If your business is a company, let's talk about some key, key changes. So what would they be? Well, one of them was the safe harbour uh, rules that came in um, in July 2017. So it's been going for just over a year. Um, what that meant is that it, it stopped um, company directors um, getting too concerned about insolvent trading. And it, it's given them a avenue where they can continue trading uh, even while they may technically be insolvent. But, of course, you know, nothing's got... Nothing's a free lunch, and there's some mm. strings attached to that as well so that people need to be aware of. So, And again, this is where a lot of the smaller companies, so companies, say, with a turnover of under a couple of million dollars, um, it may sound great to them, but it, it may not necessarily be applicable to them. So um, they've got to be aware of some of the, the thresholds and, and reliance on those things as well. Right, and I was interested in um, the Bankruptcy Act, and it's always that sort of evil word that we don't like to talk about from a business perspective, but I was really pleased to see that only 19% of uh, insolvencies are business-related. That was lower than I thought it would be. Yeah, so most of them are things to do with your own personal credit, so rather than a business going... Um, or being the cause for them going insolvent. Um, and one of the changes that have been proposed at the moment is that um, insolvency will, uh, will bankruptcy only lasts for a year uh, rather than three years, which it is currently. Um, and what I expect we'll see with that is um, a lot of businesses not entering to debt arrangements Um when they do go bankrupt, mm. when the owners go bankrupt. So um, I think that's a concern for creditors. So I think creditors, are, and so if you're uh, a supplier to or you've bought something from business and they go um, into bankruptcy, then I think that's a concern for you and that can have a flow-on effect to your own business as well. Yeah, let's just talk about that for a minute because, I, look... Ugh. It certainly doesn't encourage people to avoid bankruptcy, doesn't it? It's almost I don't I don't know I don't know if, if I like it, Stephen. What what's your view? It, to me, it's it, it, you know, it, it almost encourages people to go bankrupt. Mm. And they're also removing some other restrictions, which uh, were a disincentive for people to go bankrupt, so, such as um, uh, the restriction to for applying for credit while disclosing that your bankrupt status. You, you can be able to uh, apply for credit going forward. Um, you'll be able to travel overseas without seeking permission from your trustee. Um, you'll be able to obtain certain licenses and memberships. So, for instance, if you wanted to, if you're an accountant and you want to be a member of the Chartered Accountants, you don't have to disclose now, or you won't be able to have to disclose that you're uh, a bankrupt when you put your uh, application in. Yeah, I mean, it, the, um, our, our case for not liking it get, is building, uh, and yep. certainly, uh, it's, it's removing barriers and things like stigma and things. And so, why are they doing it? What's their motivation for doing this? The motivation is to get people back up and going and having another go. So, it's all about the, you know, um, to succeed, you have to fail sort of mentality. Right. So, uh, and that's driving a lot of this reform at the moment. They understand that uh, a large number of startup businesses fail, mm. um, 
but it's a it's a numbers game. So if you you start up ten times, then you you're likely to succeed by the tenth time, sort of. Right. Okay. Scenario. Okay. Well, it's it's an interesting interesting way of thinking. Um, now, what about credit reporting to the ATO? Has that changed? It changed um, just over a year ago as well, um, and I think this is a little unknown um, factor by most small businesses is that um, if you have an outstanding debt with ATO of more than 90 days and over $10,000 and you haven't um, made a substantial sort of um, effort to uh, raise that matter with the ATO, so you just put your head in the sand, uh, the ATO can actually put that debt on your credit file, which will last for five years. Wow. Okay. So maybe that's counteracting the bankruptcy act. <laughs> Some counterbalancing yeah. going on there using an accounting term. Yeah. Which which makes obviously it hard for you to borrow money mm. to keep going uh, or to get supply agreements so that you can keep going. So it's a really big uh, tool that the ATO have at stopping businesses just carrying on incurring debts. Um Interesting. Now, let's uh, let's talk about some ways we can uh, avoid some of these problems. And as I said earlier, anyone listening now, please seek professional advice on these new new laws that are affecting businesses and entrepreneurs, particularly those that are struggling. Uh, but please seek um, expert advice. But let's talk about some uh, simple ways to avoid the problem, Stephen. So with the ATO, I suppose one is to to engage with them early, not put your head in the sand, I'd imagine. Absolutely. That's the best thing you can do is if you have a problem, if you can't, uh, or you can have a problem with your lodgement or a payment, get hold of the ATO. Get it on file, get it so that you've got a payment plan. Uh, that'll be the first thing that you need to do with the ATO. Okay, that's good advice. And the next thing is about your BAS statements. And most small business and entrepreneurs still do their own BAS statement and making sure that you do it on time. Yeah, it doesn't sound that hard, but it's something that um, a lot of businesses, and especially businesses that are struggling, their accounting systems mm. and their focus on doing accounting um, is often a little bit lax. So I'd encourage you to keep those up to date. Um, and I think the the real thing that are or the main message with all of these legislations is to put your hand up early and go and get someone to help you. Yeah, look, and I also think not only from a technical perspective, but from a psychological perspective as well, because it has enormous effect and putting your head in the sand and pretending it's not there is not an effective strategy. <laughs> Let's face it. So have a talk to someone that you know that you're comfortable with or a professional about it, because it will affect every area of your life. You'll, it'll be causing you more stress. It'll be affecting your sleep at night. There's lots of issues there, Stephen, isn't there? Now, what are some of the sort of other key issues in your experience that that you find entrepreneurs particularly face? Um, Well, I I think businesses and struggling businesses are a bit like treating an addict, uh, really, Jackie. So, you know, they've got to accept that they've got a problem. And when they do that, then they can be helped. Um, So, and I think another part of that which goes with with that is that you may be a, a great practitioner, but it doesn't mean you know how to run a business well. 
And I had a, a lady in Sydney ring me this morning. Uh, she's a home care provider, for instance, uh, been a nurse for 15 years, got a good little home care business, uh, but she admitted, I don't know how to run a business. And, oh, yeah, and I said to her at the time, that's the, that's the first thing you need to do, is admit that you don't know how to run your business. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a whole nother discussion. I meet lots of people yeah. who start a business and, and I say, have you, done, have you got a business plan? First question, they go, no. And I go, oh, straight away, red flag. And, and, and they're not doing it because they're trying to cut corners. They're just completely ignorant as to what is involved. And, and I think that's a real concern, particularly when there's a real growth, uh, and rise on people with people starting their own businesses now. So hopefully, they listening to podcasts and radio shows like this to help to help them improve. Now, Stephen, have you got a new book in you? Oh, I haven't got a new book at the moment, Jackie. No, I haven't. But oh. um, I'm starting gathering some bits and pieces. So watch this space. And think about putting another one out later. Um, oh, yeah. Great. So your book at the moment is Run Your Business Better, and you'll find that anywhere you can buy books. I'm assuming. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly online, uh, it is in uh, major bookshops in Australia at the moment. Um, I think it's in Melbourne and Sydney airports um, as well. Um, you can buy it from my publisher, Major Street Publishing, or myself. Um, you can buy it, I think, on some online portals like Booktopia and um, Book Depository, for instance, and Amazon. Um, in different formats as well. Yeah. Well, if anyone wants to find out more about Stephen Barnes, your website, Stephen, is? www.byronvaleadvisors.com Byron Vale Advisors. Stephen Barnes, great book, Run Your Business Better for Anyone Starting Business. Also a great gift for someone close to you who is starting a business as it gives you a practical guide as to what you should or shouldn't do. Stephen Barnes, always good talking to you. Thank you so much for your precious time. Thanks, Jackie. Very much appreciated. Great. You're listening to Taking Care of Business as we speak to the best brains in the business world. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. Today we focus on fixing issues. That was amazing. That was George Michael. We all love that song. We're looking at fixing issues within businesses and a crucial area are the behavior of leaders. Modern leaders face a rapidly changing environment where traditional ways of leading teams and building organizations are no longer as effective as they once were. So I thought it was time that I actually had a chat to a leadership specialist. I'd love to welcome Corinne Armour to the show. Hello. Thank you, Jackie. Great to have you here, Corinne. Now, you've just released a new book called Leaders Who Ask, Why is Telling Less and Asking More Effective? You talk about building fearless cultures by telling more, telling less and asking more. Why is that so effective? Well, when we tell people what to do, mm. It tends to disempower and disengage. So if I tell you what to do, you might listen, but it's only your rational brain that's going to be listening. Whereas if I can ask you a question, that leads to insight. And insight is that flash of inspiration where you bring together perhaps even seemingly unrelated things to form a new idea. If I ask you a question that leads to insight that you've developed for yourself, then 
there's an emotional component to that. So you're much more likely to remember it. There's a connection to the hippocampus, the part of the brain that um, is responsible for long-term memory. You're also more likely to be able to um, extrapolate that insight to other contexts. So I tell you what to do. You might know what to do right now. You may or may not listen. I mean, you may or may not remember. And you won't have that real connection to it. Whereas if I ask you, you come up with your own insight, you're likely to remember it, you're likely to feel an ownership of it, and you're more able to extrapolate that uh, to apply it to similar situations in the future. So it's a win-win. I love your link to uh, the emotional links in the brain and those that listen regularly know that I'm a, a neuro-nut. I love the uh, the latest findings and it's the findings are happening so much oh, quickly. Are. It's they unbelievable. Are. It's actually a real game changer in my view. And if we can understand how our brain works, we can understand how our customers' brains work and that helps us effectively communicate, effectively market, so many things that we could do. And this is one element that I loved in your book was really focusing on the emotional links. It's quite often an area that is overlooked in businesses. Has that been your experience? Uh, I, I think so too. We're very good at rational. We're very good at telling. We're very good at quantitative you know, basis for why we should do things. Mm. And people don't buy on logic. They buy on emotion and then they justify on logic. And so... Um, yeah, I think the more we can tap into what's real for people, what's important for people, then the more we're going to engage them and the more we're going to build accountability. Yeah, there was a guest I had on oh, a few weeks ago now, Vet Cordy. I don't know if you know of it, but she's just written a no. book called Cultivating Curiosity. And the probably out of the whole book, the one point that really resonated with me was she said, don't be an expert, be a novice, because a novice will ask yes. so many more questions. And it's a similar yeah. point to what to what you're making is, is asking questions. And I know with, uh, with this radio show that I've been doing now for um, six and coming up to seven years, and uh, I've interviewed over a thousand experts and I'm a bit nerdy and I keep sort of notes on key points and I thought I'll go back and have a look at the the top three most common themes or most common bits of advice that these incredible brains like yourself are sharing and see if there's a common thread because if all these yeah. successful people are saying it what would that be and number one was just ask and that's exactly right. what you're doing, what you're saying in your book. So there you go. You've, you're another one on my list of, of, uh, of experts or novices saying the importance of asking, why don't leaders ask more? Yeah. Why don't they? Well, uh, part of it is the way we have grown up perceiving leaders as being those with the answers. And... And it wasn't that long ago that we really did expect our leaders to know everything. But we're in an environment now that's so complex and changing so rapidly that it's just not possible for one person to know everything. Um, and, and so I think intellectually we know that, but we still feel the requirement um, at, at almost an unconscious level to have the answers. So I had a, had a conversation with a client once who was really good at coaching um in a performance conversation. So when he knew he was sitting down having a performance conversation with somebody, he was really good at coaching. But on the job, when people would fire questions at, at him, he would just answer them. And he knew that that wasn't helping him to get things done and to become more strategic because it was keeping him 
constantly with the need to provide the answers. And, and so I said to him, why do you provide the answers? And, and he said, it's a habit um, and it's about helping and helping too hard. So, and time, and the third one is time. So, you know, I, I'm, habitually I answer, and so you ask me a question without even thinking, I'll fight off the answer. Um, time, I think it's faster to give you the answer, and in that moment it might be, but if I'm, if I'm maintaining a dependency on me, then that's not faster in the long term. It's not even faster in the medium term. And then, that, um, in his case, helping, and what he realised is he was helping too hard that his helping was actually disempowering people around him. Oh, that's really, really fascinating. In, in your book, you talk about uh, engagement is, is down globally. What did you mean by that? Sorry, I've just lost it. Engagement is down It's down globally, globally yeah. So, we're, well, a, so, you know, obviously we're disengaging more. We are disengaging more, although interestingly... Um, Figures that have come out even since the book was published, and you talk about neuroscience shifting class, it, is, it does actually look like engagement is going up slightly. Um, but even if it is, so some latest figures that I looked at, global engagement is 65%. So that's people who, um, uh, who are saying that I am somewhat or super very engaged. But that means that two out of five people you're working with would rather be somewhere else doing something else with someone else. Mm. So, and, and Australian engagement figures are 60%, so lower than that global engagement figure, you know, despite the fact that we're the lucky country. So regardless of what it is in your company, um, I think anybody who's disengaged, then they're not making the contribution that you want them to make. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting also in your book and it, it got me thinking. You said building fearless cultures by telling less and asking more, but then I got stuck on the word fearless and I thought to myself, <laughs> <laughs> as, as I do. It is, it's a, it's a very provocative word. And I thought to myself, do all leaders need to be fearless? Do they? Well, I think yes, but can I define fearless? Please. So- for me, it, it's not about being completely fearless. It's about fearing less. Because the only time you're going to have a complete absence of fear is when you're drunk or, or dead. And neither, <laughs> neither are particularly useful for leadership. So it's about recognising where there's a fear and using that as data. So do all leaders need to be fearless? In, if that's what fearless means, then yes. I think it takes... It takes a level of courage to connect with your own stuff. Now, it takes it takes a level of, of courage and of bravery to connect deeply and to engage with other people. Um, so, and, and that's even without thinking about what are some of the big decisions that you're going to have to make that you're going to just need to defend to your stakeholders, to your team, to the media, to your customers, depending on what role you're in. So I think, yes, we all need an element of fearlessness. That's a wonderful answer. Thank you for that. Now, I do have to ask you, as in prep for today, and I, I wanted to sort of find out a bit more about you, and I was completely fascinated by and slightly distracted uh, by <laughs> you living and working in a jungle refugee camp on the edge of a war zone. Can you please tell us more about that? Well, 
Well, and maybe arguably that's where an element of the fearlessness came from. So, yes, I lived for nearly three years in a jungle refugee camp on the Thai-Burmese border. So I was working with Karen refugees from Thailand on the edge of a war zone. Um, it's something I never... I grew up in country Victoria. I was very um, comfortable, privileged farming background. Never expected to find myself living in a war zone. Um, it's probably true that my mother, my mother never expected have an elder daughter living in a war zone either. Um, that experience did a lot for me in terms of defining leadership and just watching the people who I was, I was working directly with the local people, watching real leaders in action there. And also thinking about when you've got hundreds of thousands of people in refugee camps, that's such a complete waste of human potential. Um, and, that, and that's a problem of leadership. And I came back to Australia and I thought, well, you know, I'm back here and everyone has the opportunity in Australia to live to their full potential. You know, we don't have these challenges. And we don't have challenges quite on that wide-scale um, level. But every company I go into, I meet people who aren't living up to their potential. I meet teams that aren't living up to their potential. And so that's that same fearlessness again. That, you know, that we all need that. I, I can yeah. talk about living in a jungle refugee camp for hours and hours. Well, we, we might need to. Time of my life. We might need to put that on, <laughs> take that on notice, and uh, and have you back again. But I do love the phrase, and you referred to that—the human potential—and you said you uh, that's where you have an active passion to help others avoid the wasted human potential that results when leadership is missing. That is a really, really powerful. Statement and uh, and hopefully you've got that as one of your quotes because uh, that was that was mind blowing. So, well done with that. Now let's just quickly talk about this book, Leaders Who Ask, Corinne Armour, and it's available everywhere you can find a book. It's a nice picture of you on the back, and I highly recommend it for those. And how have you been finding the process? Is this your first book? No, this is my third book. So oh. two mainstream leadership books, actually four, depending on how you count them, and right. then two specialists. Um, text in, in people development. And this is my first solo one, though, I have to say, and it is different writing on your own than writing, writing with two others. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so it's very exciting now that it's done and out, and it's getting, uh, getting a really good response, which is reassuring, because you spend a lot of time in your own head when you write. And even when you write, and when you're writing, as I do, things that you're doing every day, so... It, it also reflects the experience um, of my clients in the book, but it's still a lot of time in your head. And so it's nice to actually get it out in the world and have people respond positively to it. Yeah, well, c- congratulations. It's an enormous effort and even more impressive that it's your third book. But the first one that you've written on your own, and I've got a very strong feeling there's going to be more to come. Your next book, Corinne, what is it? Oh, I'm not thinking, but I'm, I'm not clear, completely clear yet, but I think the working title is Fearless Challenge, something about how to have the conversations in the workplace that need to happen. Okay, it's exciting. Okay, well, stay tuned. Look forward to it. Corinne Armour, thank you so much for your valuable time. And if anyone listening wants to find out more about you, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, they can go to www.corinnearmour.com. Excellent. Easy. Wonderful. Thanks again.
Thanks, Jackie. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Taking Care of Business as we are talking to some amazing business brains and we look forward to your company on the other side of this break. Right back in a minute. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business as we are talking today about how to fix it in your business. If you're working in or advising or managing a dysfunctional team, then you know firsthand the destructive impacts of conflict, bad behaviour and poor culture has. Our next guest is going to guide and help us to relieve the headaches for managers and business owners in managing teams. She's the co-founder and managing director of workplace advisory firm WorkLogic and published author Rose Bryant-Smith. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jackie. Great to have you here. Now, Rose, I've got it start really obvious question and it was something when I was looking at your book which we'll talk about in a sec but what are the characteristics of a dysfunctional team because I looked at that and thought I wonder if my team's dysfunctional so what what should I be looking for? Well, most of the signs of dysfunctional teams are pretty obvious. So I think if you don't feel like you're working in a dysfunctional team, you're probably not. Uh, but I think one of the things to look for if you, if you fear that perhaps your team isn't working at its best um, is a conflict that's not being addressed, things that are ticking on over time uh, and that nobody feels safe enough or brave enough to have a conversation about. Um, individuals who are behaving badly, like lots of gossip in the tea room uh, type of of dragging down conversations Uh, and also sometimes what might be put forward as all good fun in fact is quite toxic and nasty so jokes about particular groups of people um, or undermining and excluding individuals. It's interesting you mentioned jokes because I've always had a view that I mean humour is a is a wonderful gift, but it can be used for evil, and uh, and a lot of people use jokes and humour to be really nasty, but they sort of hide it or cover it up by saying oh, I'm yeah. just joking, uh, and real and not realising that the the damage that they're doing. Yeah, that's right. And I think another another thing that people do is is forget that when you're at work, even if you're mates with some of your colleagues, uh, the different rules apply. So sometimes people think, oh, well, if it's okay down at the pub to make some joke about a racist group, and when I say okay, not by me, but by mm. some people, um, then that should be fine at work and it's all a bit of fun. The reality is that in a workplace, we're all subject to not only the policies and procedures that apply in that workplace to how we treat each other, but also the state and federal laws which ban discrimination, um, bullying and, and other um, nasty conduct. So um, it, we um, at WorkLogic, we do a lot of investigations of um, allegations of misconduct like racism and bullying and uh, people do sadly often try and argue, oh, it was just a joke and the person who's mm-hmm. taken offence just doesn't have a sense of humour and needs to lighten up, but that's almost never the case. Um, the fact is, if you you're saying something that's racist and you think it's funny uh, doesn't mean it's not racist. Is is that a growing uh, trend that you've seen that more and more people are um, taking workplaces to task over this behaviour? 
people these days are more prepared to, to put their hand up and say, hang on, that's not on, when they see something going on in the workplace that's offensive to them. And I think that's a really good thing. I think that with, um, firstly, the, the legal protections around um, good uh, proper behaviour in the workplace, you know, banning things like bullying, sexual harassment, um, you know, uh, and other you know, inappropriate conduct. Um, but also, I think as a society, we've got a better recognition that um, no one should have to show up at work and be subjected to, to nasty behaviour that causes um, distress and even mental illness. And, and I think some of the trends we've seen over the last 12 months, like the, the Me Too movement that originated in the US, um, have really indicated that, that um, it's, it's not only is it okay to speak up when um, uh, toxic or inappropriate behaviour is happening in, happening in the workplace, but in fact, it's our duty um, to our colleagues and, and really to the community to say, hang on a sec, it's not okay to me even if somebody else is being treated badly. Because this isn't just an ethical question um, and not just a legal question. In addition, it's really damaging to the business as well as to um, individual people's uh, health and safety. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's interesting because it's it sort of got me thinking and I've listened to people say, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're being overly politically correct and I've gone well I don't know if is is that true or is it is it not are they are people becoming more sensitive or is it only because awareness has increased what's your view yeah I don't think people are, are becoming more sensitive I, I just think that um, it's that it, this whole idea of oh it's all just political correctness gone mad is often a backlash against a change in values in the workplace um, and, and an attempt to, to go back to these inverted commas good old days of the 1960s uh, but the reality is that um, these days uh, that sort of um, you know nasty behaviour like um, hazing rituals or um, you know um, people being you know required to to tolerate you know nasty drinking culture or sexual harassment you know that's been quite appropriately left behind um, and and the fact is that 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 sort of conduct well firstly in my view it was never okay but but these days it's recognised that that sort of behaviour really does damage not only the individual um, you know job satisfaction. Uh, psychological health and you know that, that that things like sleepless nights and anxiety are quite common for people who are harassed and bullied um, but in addition that one person who's behaving badly in the workplace actually has quite a damaging ripple effect on the broader team in terms of starting to poison the culture and if the workplace doesn't act on that bad behavior sort of setting a trend that it's okay if we treat each other this way um, and in addition it damages um, productivity it diverts management attention um, and it's more likely that the, the best performer in a team will leave if somebody else in the team is behaving badly and being allowed to get away with it. So there was a really interesting study done that was published in a Harvard Business School report a couple of years ago which found that keeping a toxic employee on the payroll costs the average business about 15000 American dollars per year more uh, because of the damage to productivity and the, the greater likelihood that the stars of the team are going to leave. So, you know, so this isn't just a nice to have. This is something that um, employers really need to, to sit up and pay attention to. If, if they're carrying a toxic team, they need to really think about what is the cost 
to the business as well as the additional uh, legal and compliance risk that we're bearing um, and to think about, you know, if we could save an extra 15 grand a year and improve productivity, you know, uh, get the team back on track as far as its focus on the work, wouldn't that be a good thing? Yeah, well, it's. I find it quite fascinating. I was thinking about it in prep for our conversation today and I thought it's almost impossible to avoid because you're dealing with human beings and behaviour is always going to vary uh, and it's more about how to manage it in the workplace because there's always going to be certain personality types that people are not going to get on. There's going yeah, to be the, the politics and things. So it's more about managing it. Uh, and so in your new book, it's a nice little segue to talk about your new book, Fix Your Team, the tools to you need to rebuild relationships, address conflict and stop destructive behaviours. So I thought we might just focus the next little while on what some of the tools are. So let's, let's sort of focus more on what we can do to help manage so let's start with rebuilding relationships. What are some of the advice that or guidance that you would give someone? So for the manager to help the team rebuild relationships? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if you're in a managerial position, you've got to be aware that um, it's legitimate for you to intervene if people in the team are disagreeing and that that disagreement is actually impacting on the ability to do work. So I think a lot of managers are hesitant to, to call out, say, gossiping or undermining behaviour because they don't want to um, create more conflict. Mm. I think sometimes there's the fear or they don't want to be seen as coming in heavy or someone who's, you know, not up for a bit of fun. Um, they want to get along with a lot of people. And in addition, I think a lot of managers, in fact, you know, like everybody else, fear conflict or are not quite sure how to step in. But I think the first step is to for the manager to really look at what's going on in the team and think, are these dysfunctional relationships and the way people are treating each other um, damaging our ability to do the best work we can do as a group? And if they are, then that is a legitimate and, in fact, an appropriate thing for you to to intervene in. And there's a few different ways you can do that. You could have um, some offline conversations with a couple of individuals and check with them to see whether what you're perceiving to be um, problem relationships, in fact, is what's happening. You can develop some self-reflection in the whole team, doing a, a, some sort of a team building or review exercise where the team thinks about, well, what are we trying to achieve together? Are we clear on that? Are we clear how each one of us and our work fits into that broader effort? And also, do we agree on the values that should guide how we get there? Because quite often... There's a lack of clarity in the way the team is operating that's meaning that um, individual spats or um, bad behaviour by one person are being allowed to, to continue over a long period of time because there just isn't sufficient accountability for what we're doing and how we treat each other. So I think the first thing for managers is really to decide to, to t um, take action and then to think carefully about how they can do that. That's wonderful advice, Rose Bryant-Smith. Your book is available, I'm assuming, where all books, good books are sold. It and is, and <laughs> online also with Book Depository and uh, Booktopia. Excellent. Now, if people want to find more about WorkLogic and more about you, where's the best place for them to find out? Yeah, so they can find out on worklogicinoneword.com.au, which is the website of our consulting firm. And we've also set up a separate site, fix-your-team.com, which talks about the book. There's a blog with articles that we've written and published in, in newspapers and magazines about various team dysfunction.
functions. And also there's some downloadable training for managers, 40 minutes of training about the five key skills that managers can develop to help turn around their team and bring out the best in everyone. Oh, that's great, Rose. Thank you so much for your your wisdom today and sharing all that knowledge. Really appreciate your valuable time. Thanks for having me, Jackie. Thank you. Great to talk to you. You're listening to Taking Care of Business as we are picking the best brains in the business world as we're talking about fixing it today. And we'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business that's the end of the show. Can't believe it goes so fast. We hope you've enjoyed eavesdropping on our conversation today, picked up some tips, learned something new, or at the very least feel inspired. If you just joined us, you missed a lot, but you can grab this show on the podcast on the PFM website, au, or follow us on social media. Thank you to all of our worldly guests today, and we look forward to your company next Friday, 11 a.m. In the meantime... Keep taking care of your business.